well, uh, good morning, Matt Rooftop, lead pastor. Uh, if you know this episode from The Office, it sounds like a lot of you, you do. Um, in the episode, manager Michael Scott uh, discovers that there is lots of conflict between uh, lots of his, his fellow employees, and he decides to try his hand at uh, negotiating these conflicts. Uh, as you can imagine, knowing Michael Scott, it does not go well. Uh, by the end of the day, every single one of his office staff absolutely hates every other single one of his office staff. Compromise, working out conflicts, is, is hard. Uh, whether you're compromising on silly things like kitschy posters uh, up on office walls or significantly more important things, you know, like theological positions, uh, it can be painful to not get everything you want. But as we learn from the book of Romans in the Bible, there's nothing more Christian than learning how to compromise for the sake of office unity. Where we are sometimes stuck at impasses with friends, coworkers, family members, Christian brothers and sisters, compromise is a gift. God gives us, offering us a way through, a way out. We've been studying Romans uh, here at Rooftop uh, for the past year or so in an extended study currently called Food Fight. As a quick reminder, Romans is a book in the Bible in the New Testament. It's written by a guy named Paul. Paul was a first century Christian missionary who traveled around starting churches, visiting churches. He really wanted to visit the Christian church in the city of Rome, so he writes them a nice long letter. In the first half of the book of Romans, Paul sort of sums up uh, his understanding of the Christian gospel, the message of Christianity, that uh, Jesus died on the cross so that we could be justified in God's sight, that we, so that we could be made righteous in God's sight, uh, and we can receive the gift of eternal life uh, because of what Jesus did by faith. So that's the essential, uh, the essence of Christianity. And in the second half of Romans, Paul applies that message to our lives. How should the mes message of, of righteousness uh, by faith impact us? How should it change us? How should it transform us? Because it should, a lot. And one of the ways that the message of Christianity should change us is by, is there actually a very practical way. It's by helping us be able to get along better with others, which involves an awful lot of compromise. So, with that said, uh, let me go ahead and read to you our passage for the morning in which the Apostle Paul discusses this. It's Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes these words. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught us in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now, short little passage, uh, refreshingly short, but it takes place in the context of a larger section, and in order to really understand what's going on in this short little passage, we've got to remind, ourself, remind ourselves of, of the larger section. Now, in this larger section in Romans, uh, Paul is attempting to do a little Michael Scott thing. He's trying to, 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 to negotiate conflict between two groups of people. They're, they're not arguing about kitschy posters on the wall, though. They're arguing about food, uh, of all things. 
Christians in the church in Rome arguing about food. And he identifies these two groups of people as the weak and the strong. And in one corner, the weak, you have a, a group of Christians, probably Jewish Christians, Jews who had converted to Christianity, who believed that in order to really follow Jesus, you have to honor and obey a bunch of Old Testament rules and regulations that still apply. Uh, especially, or including at least, dietary rules and regulations. So in order to really follow Jesus, you've got to kind of obey what the Bible says, what the Old Testament says about food. Uh, and in their interpretation, that means not eating meat. So in order to follow Jesus, you need to not eat meat. And in the other uh, corner, you have uh, uh, Christians who believe, no, that's not really true. Uh, Jesus died to free us from those regulations. Uh, Christians can eat whatever they want, as long as it's properly prepared. Christians can eat whatever they want. Now, instead of being an interesting little argument or discussion, a debate between you know, two groups of people, uh, the, the church in Rome had gotten kind of chippy with each other. Uh, they had started judging each other and gossiping about each other, and it was maybe fracturing their church a little bit, and, and they were, it was threatening the effectiveness of their mission. And Paul was really concerned that they were going to be less effective as a church because they were arguing about something silly. They, they weren't going to be able to, to preach the gospel very effectively, uh, which is the case. I mean, any sports team manager will tell you that the worst thing you can have on your team is conflict in the clubhouse, right? You're not going to be able to win a lot of games if your team members, like, don't like each other. You're not going to win the Super Bowl. You're not going to win any sporting matches. You're not going to win anything if there's conflict in the clubhouse. So Paul writes to the church saying, stop. Uh, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. That's what he says. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. It's just not that important. Now, key to what Paul says here uh, to the Romans is he identifies the matter of whether or not Christians can eat meat he identifies it as what he calls a disputable matter. We've talked about this for the past month, but it bears repeating because it's so important. A disputable matter is anything that Christians can disagree on in good conscience and still regard each other as Christians. Anything that is not necessarily directly related to the essential core of Christianity. What's the essential core of Christianity? I mean, Christianity is a lot of stuff, but the essential core of Christianity is actually fairly simple. It's that it's about Jesus. Jesus is the perfect son of God who came to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead to defeat the power of death, ascended into heaven, and is coming back again to restore all things. That's the essence of Christianity. Anything else is disputable. It might be important, but it doesn't necessarily need to divide us. It's something that we can kind of disagree on in good conscience. And yes, this involves whether or not Christians can eat meat. That's his point. It's disputable. It doesn't, it's important. You can talk about it, but don't divide over it. and Don't bicker over it. Over the past month or so, we've talked about us. In our day and age, Christians get into all kinds of food fights over disputable matters, and they can include anything. Uh, what the best type of worship music is, uh, how to baptize people properly, whether or not divorce is a sin, whether Christians should vote Democrat or Republican or Green or whatever, or whether they should vote at all. These are very important things but we can disagree on them without dividing. They're disputable. They have nothing to do with the essential core of Christianity. Maintaining our unity as believers is far more important than having the right to kind of argue our opinion to the point of division. So that's Paul's general point in this section. Uh, but what do you do about it? What's the solution? I mean, that's great in theory, yeah, unity is important, more important than your divisions over these little things. What's the solution? 
uh, when you have two groups of people who are fundamentally committed to their opinion and perspective, you know, Christians should eat meat, Christians should not eat meat, how are they going to find unity? Well, that's why Paul writes this passage. Uh, he doesn't really use the word, but he strongly implies it, that the way forward is going to involve an awful lot of compromise. Here's what he says. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Now, in the context of Romans, this means that the brothers who eat meat ought to not eat meat so as to satisfy the demands of the brothers who don't eat meat in order to maintain the unity of the church. Even though Paul is very clear that he believes very strongly Christians have the right to eat meat, he says, no, it's the responsibility of people who do eat meat to not eat meat so as not to offend the religious sensibilities of those people who don't eat meat. Now, question, why? Why is that the compromise? Why does Paul make it the responsibility of the people who do eat meat to not eat meat in order to not offend the sensibilities of the people who don't eat meat and maintain church unity? Why is that the solution? Frankly, because Paul believes that the people who do eat meat are more mature and more capable of being flexible. The unity, the work of God is too important to be interrupted by disputes like this. Someone needs to give, so it might as well be the more mature people who are more flexible. Because they are more mature, theoretically, they are more capable of being flexible. Additionally, this is how Jesus lived his life. That might be actually Paul's big point. As he writes, even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. I know it's an odd Old Testament reference, but it's basically a messianic prophecy highlighting the Messiah's uh, sacrificial character, his willingness to, 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 to take it in the gut uh, for the sake of other people. We need to be able to do that also in our disputes with others. So, so that's Paul's basic idea, is that people eating meat should not eat meat, uh, even though they have every right to eat meat in order to satisfy the religious sensibilities of people who don't eat meat. Now, just so you know, this is actually Paul, something Paul lived out. This, this wasn't just uh, something he... he taught just because it sounded good. It's actually something he practiced. Uh, Paul, like you might know, was a, a missionary. He traveled around. He was always trying to, to, to minister to and preach to uh, all different types of people in different contexts, and, and he, he wanted to eliminate barriers between him and them so that they could hear the message of Christ, and he even compromised his own convictions in order to do that. For example, uh, one time, Paul spent a lot of time preaching in Jewish Christian contexts. And Paul himself is a Jew. He spent a lot of time preaching to, to Jewish Christians or just Jews. Uh, and he, he, he didn't want to offend them by anything other than the message of Christ. So, so he obeyed their law, even when he knew he didn't need to. One time in the book of Acts, for example, Paul actually travels all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, to take... Uh, take and honor an Old Testament Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, which involved him shaving his head in order, he, he clearly didn't believe that he needed to do that, but he did it anyway in order to keep peace with Jewish Christians who would be offended uh, if he didn't do that. In another situation, Paul actually meets a, uh, a young missionary protege, a guy named Timothy. 
Timothy uh, had a Greek father, which means he was a Gentile. And as a Gentile, he had not been, you know what I'm referring to, circumcised. Paul really wanted to take Timothy on his missionary travels, but they would spend a lot of time in synagogues preaching to Jewish Christian people who would insist that in order to follow Jesus, you had to be circumcised. So what did Paul do? Paul circumcised Timothy himself. Timothy's a grown man. They didn't have like anesthetics or anything. Paul circumcised Timothy himself to remove that as a barrier between him and his Jewish Christian audience. Now, I, don't, I have no idea. How would anybody have ever known that Timothy wasn't circumcised? I mean, would, did they do cup checks and or <laughs> something? So I don't know how they would have figured that out. But he said, just in case they like do, you know, figure that out, I don't want that to be a barrier. Now, I know that wasn't necessarily Paul's sacrifice. It was more like Timothy's sacrifice. Poor little Timmy. But the point is here, maintaining unity with other believers can be quite painful. <laughs> you got it. Uh, it can involve great pain, but it's important. Basically, in practical terms, what Paul is saying is that if the gospel is not at stake and the unity of God's people is at stake, people who can be flexible should be flexible. That's what he's saying. If the gospel is not at stake and the unity of God's people is at stake, people who can be flexible can be, should be flexible. People who should not eat meat or who cannot eat meat should not eat meat if it keeps the peace with people who are offended by eating meat. Uh, people who can be flexible about what music style to, to worship to should be flexible if it doesn't offend people who are not flexible about what music to listen to. The unity of God's people is that important, and additionally, this is how Jesus lived his life. So that's Paul's main point here, that if the gospel isn't at stake, people who can be flexible should be flexible. Now, clear enough, but if you're like me, you like to overthink things. Anybody else here like to overthink things? Let's form a, an overthink things club. First time of business. Should we exist? <laughs> Not to overthink things. If this is, if this is uh, what Paul seems to be saying, people, should, people who can be flexible should be flexible, it does raise certain questions. Uh, not to make things more complicated, but these are questions worth asking. For example, one, what if you can't please everybody? I mean, you can't. You really can't please everybody. And you can't please all the people all the time. You know what they say. And, and what if you can't please everybody? What, what if by like, modifying your behavior to please some people, you end up offending other people who are offended that you modified your behavior? Like, for example, uh, maybe the number one criticism we get here at Rooftop Church, and it's always been our number one criticism, is that our music is too loud. We've heard that loud and clear, ironically, from lots of people. M music's too loud. Love everything, music's too loud. Now, if we turned it down, uh, we would actually end up offending other people who think the music is too soft. Uh, so who do you please? You know, I, I like the music loud. Some of you might like the music soft, so who do you please? Right now, we keep the music loud because I'm in charge, and that's what I like. So. <laughs> but who do, you, who do you try to please? I mean, who do you modify your behavior to make happy? Secondly, that's one question. Secondly, what if these people are being stupid? What if they're just being irrational? Uh, why should they get to set the agenda? Isn't that like giving in to the loudest, most dysfunctional member of a family? 
when my children are having a dispute, the way we resolve it is not by letting the loudest, angriest, least flexible child kind of set the terms. No, usually that person, that child, goes to her, her or his room. <laughs> that child is usually the one who goes to bed early. So for, for Paul to suggest that the way to handle conflicts is to give in to the least flexible people, frankly, that sounds like bad parenting advice. So third, that's the second question. Thirdly, and this is a big one, I want you to stay with me. Do denominations change things? Do denominations change things? A denomination is a group of Christians that worship together according to certain theological, practical, moral, historical, traditional, cultural preferences. You know denominations, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Church of Christ, all that stuff. Um, denominations are actually fairly recent. They, they developed within the past 500 years. Prior to that, for the most part, there was just like one big Roman Catholic church, and everyone kind of had to do church together. Uh, but then the Reformation happened, and you have this flowering uh, of, of denominations. Now, honestly, one of the downsides of denominations is that Christians um, fracture too easily. We break up too easily. We, instead of having to worship with people who are different than us, uh, who think differently than us, instead of having to learn from each other and figure out how to love each other in spite of our differences, we just kind of break up and go hang out with Christians who are almost exactly like us. On the flip side, the upside of, well, flip side, the upside of denominations is that Christ, denominations allow Christians to get along without killing each other. And I'm not exaggerating. The upside of denominations is that Christians can get along without killing each other. Although, to be true, to be fair, uh, Christians find a way to kill each other even with denominations. So. But back to my question, back to my point. How do denominations affect how we should apply this passage? I mean, Paul wrote these words to the church in Rome. They didn't have any other church denominations to go to. They had to figure out how to do it together. Now that's not our situation. I mean, if somebody walks in here and says, oh, I love the church, but the music's too loud, we can say, well respectfully, that's kind of how we do it. You can try KZK 102.5 church down the road. They play their music a little softer. Or I like the church, but you're, you, know, you baptize people, uh, you baptize adults. We're like, well, that's kind of how we do it. But down the church, they baptize children. I mean, do we even need to pay attention to Romans 14, 15 anymore? Because we have all these opportunities. That's question three. Lastly, briefly, did Jesus really live this way? I mean, Paul offers up the example of Christ as an example of someone who modified, compromised his behavior for the sake of peace with others. Really? That, that Jesus? Are we talking about the same Jesus? I mean, Jesus did, tended not to modify his behavior to keep peace with um, weak-minded people. I mean, G if anything, Jesus destroyed the peace, right? He didn't keep the peace, he destroyed it. Uh, he would call people out for being ridiculous. Not like figure out how to kind of keep them happy. So these are actually hard questions. And it's why a lot of uh, critics might actually think Paul's advice, however well-intentioned, is frankly just a bit naive. Figure out how to get along, make whatever compromises you need to, you guys can work it out, go do it. I'm like, well, really? No, uh, it's not that easy. Sounds all good on paper, but putting it into practice is, is too tricky. I don't think Paul's being naive, but I do think this 
reminds us that knowing how to apply specific instructions given in one set of circumstances is hard. It's hard to figure out how those instructions apply to a different set of circumstances. You know what I mean? If your teacher or your pastor or your parents or God, whatever, give you something to do in certain circumstances, like the Roman Christians, it can be hard to know how to apply those instructions in different circumstances, like our circumstances. And the best thing that you can do in this case is to identify key principles that you can, using creativity, the input of God's people, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, apply to other circumstances. So that's what I want to do. I want to look real briefly at this section in Romans to identify key principles to the art of Christian compromise. Starting with the first one. Three principles. First, unity is oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes more important than being right. We've said this before, it bears repeating. Unity is oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes more important than being right. Paul has already said in an earlier passage, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. In other words, you are perfectly justified eating meat. There's nothing wrong eating meat. But if by eating meat, you're like making other Christians angry and driving a wedge between them and God and them and, and you and distracting everybody from the work of Christ, then stop eating meat. Eat meat later. Meat's still going to be there. Put it in the fridge. It'll keep. You might be right, and you probably are, but unity is more important than being right. Years ago, I read, um, I picked this book up, I think I was in college, and it's an old book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Uh, and, and it's actually remarkably practical and helpful. Uh, and I remember reading something like 25 years ago in How to Win Friends and Influence People that has always stuck with me, although I find it remarkably difficult to apply. One of his chapters is called, You Can't Win an Argument. That's it. You can't win an argument. Obviously, it's an overstatement, but maybe not. Uh, I mean, when pe two people are arguing, they're so entrenched that the harder you try to argue, the more entrenched both parties you get. get. And if you successfully argue your point, uh, you will probably have destroyed the relationship in the process. Just be okay being thought of as wrong. Nobody cares. Nothing's on the line. Uh, for example, I know lots of you are offended when I wear a hat while preaching. Uh, you think it's disrespectful for a preacher. I have heard from you over many years. I understand your concerns for lots of reasons. I just disagree. And honestly, humbly, I think I'm right. <laughs> Having said that, I really don't want to offend anybody. I mean, most of the time. <laughs> In fact, it seems like people who are okay with my hat being off are less offended than would be people who are offended with my hat being on. That made sense. And honestly, it's been hard preaching through Romans 14 and 15 about stronger brothers making accommodations for weaker brothers while also insisting that I have a hat, a right to wear a hat no matter what people think. That's been hard to maintain. So I really have like 
gone, you might not know this, I have gone back and forth on the hat issue lots of times. I'm not as entrenched as people think I am. So given all that, I've taken it off. For the foreseeable future, you don't need to worry about Pastor Matt wearing a hat anymore. Now, if you are offended by my hair, uh, <laughs> you have only yourselves to blame. Because <laughs> that was the whole reason. <laughs> but here's the thing. This is not about me. This is not about me. You have a hat, too. You have something you insist on, something you know you're even right on, but something you need to give up for the sake of peace, for the sake of the gospel. What is it? What's your hat? And if God asked you, as it certainly sounds like he is, would you take it off? And if not, why not? That's the first principle. Unity is sometimes more important than being right. Secondly, to compromise your behavior for the sake of peace is a sign of strength, not weakness. To compromise your behavior for the sake of peace is a sign of strength, not weakness. I actually think the world doesn't think that. The world thinks the opposite. The compromise is a sign of weakness. Just look at Washington, D.C., like right now. The, both, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans want to compromise. And as a result, all sorts of people like don't have jobs. Uh, something about a wall, big, beautiful wall. Both view compromise as a sign of weakness. But the Bible describes it in the exact opposite way. Paul identifies people capable of compromise as what? He calls them the strong. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Yeah, it takes strength to stick to your principles no matter what. I mean, I admire, I will always admire people who find a spot to stand on and do not move no matter what. I admire that. I admire those Tiananmen Square moments. You're going to have to run me over with the tank. At the same time, it can take just as much strength to compromise and be flexible where you need to be. I mean, you know what they say about trees. Flexible trees bend without breaking in storms inflexible, rigid trees snap in strong winds. The more rigid the tree, the more likely to snap. The stronger the tree is, the more flexible it is. It takes strength to compromise. Now again, there are things that we must not and never will compromise on, like the gospel, like Jesus coming to earth to die for our sins and rising from the, from the dead and coming again. We're not going to compromise on that ever. But if it's not the gospel, we can be a lot more flexible on it than we think we can be. But that takes strength. That takes maturity. I mean, it's the, it's the mature people who are capable of doing that. It's the immature people who aren't. Uh, years ago, for example, I, I, I heard a story from Dallas Willard, who was a, a philosophy professor out at, well, he, he passed away, but he was a Christian philosophy professor out at USC. He's a great favorite, great writer. If you ever see anything by Dallas Willard, just pick it up and read it, trust me. Uh, and... Uh, he, he was talking about, uh, he was teaching in class one day, and uh, in the middle of class, uh, an especially mouthy student uh, raised his hand and just accosted him with 
unfair questions and criticisms and insults and just an ugly little classroom moment. And Willard says he took that opportunity to dismiss the class. He said, well, that might be a good place to, for us to end our discussion today. And afterwards, another student came up to him and said, Professor Willard, why did you... Why don't you let that kid get away with that? I mean, you could have leveled him. And Willard said, I was practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. That takes strength. Not having to have the last word. Letting people say things. Letting people get away with stuff. That takes strength. That's not weakness. That's a strength. You have to build up those muscles, though. In fact, every opportunity that we have to compromise helps us grow stronger as people. It, it takes a lot of strength to hold on to our convictions, but not insist on our own way. That's the second principle. To compromise your behavior for the sake of others is a sign of strength, not weakness. And the last principle is this. To love others as Jesus does means to sacrifice for them as Jesus did. To love others as Jesus does means to sacrifice for them as Jesus did. I mentioned earlier that the, the example of Jesus, as Paul offers it, does not necessarily seem to support his point, that, that Paul is saying, you know, modify your behavior for the sake of peace with others, like Jesus does. And I'm like, no, does he? Really? I mean, Jesus called out people. Jesus disrupted the peace. I mean, can you imagine Jesus hanging out with the Pharisees, uh, giving into their demands. Uh, or, you know, the, the scene with Jesus and the Pharisees, and there's the guy with the shriveled hand, and Jesus wants to heal the guy with the shriveled hand. Uh, but the Pharisees are there, and the Pharisees say, you can't do that because it's Saturday, and that's the Sabbath, and you can't heal people on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus not say? He doesn't say, you know what, guy with shriveled hand, I really want to heal you, but there's some people here, we don't want to offend them, and so we're going to have to reschedule the healing session Maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after, but we'll get to you, but we just don't want to unnecessarily offend our brothers, our Pharisee, our Pharisee brothers. Does Jesus say that? Not at all. You know what he says? Stretch out your hand. Watch this. <laughs> Stretch out your hand. And the guy stretches it out. You know how the Pharisees respond. They decide to kill him. So much for Christian unity. If we were to approach conflict with Jesus' conviction and follow his example, we'd probably all be dead. I mean, the Pharisees would have killed us, and they are still around. Jesus did what he thought was right. He didn't let anybody tell him otherwise. So how exactly is the example of Jesus supposed to guide us in terms of getting along with others? Well, a, a couple thoughts before we wrap up. First, Jesus knew how to pick his battles. The fights that Jesus got into with religious people were over really, really important things, like giving somebody his hand back. I believe actually very deeply in my right to wear a hat, but nobody is getting their hand back. But more importantly, the general idea here is that is what we need to figure out how to apply. And the general idea here is that we should live with other people in mind first, not ourselves. As Paul puts it, the general idea is each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for even Christ did not please himself. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, so many of the fights we pick, 
so many of the conversations we have are for our good, for ourselves, for our ego, for our advancement, for our edification, for our sense of right and wrong. We don't live to please our neighbors. I mean, if we, we live to please ourselves. If we have certain opinions on things, we spout them uh, because we can make ourselves happy. If we have certain preferences on how to vote or how to do church, we insist on them because we know what's right for others and for ourselves. But that's just not how Christ lived his life. He came here to serve others, not to prove himself right, not to prove other people wrong. That's not why he was here. He was so willing to serve other people that he actually went to the cross to die for our sins. This is uh, counterintuitive, and you might not disagree, but as Paul's point, and it really does come out of Scripture, sometimes the most edifying thing, sometimes the most helpful thing for other people is to let them think they're right, even when you know for a fact they're wrong. Sometimes the most helpful thing for other people is to let them think they're right even when you know for a fact that they're wrong. You don't have to be right. That's not what it means to be a Christian, to be right. To be a Christian means to be loving and to love other people in spite of our differences, some of which might be absolutely profound. In our churches, in our families, in our places of business, we will have many disputes with many people and many in which we almost definitely will be right. We might be entirely justified in keeping the poster up. We might be entirely justified in taking the poster down. We might be entirely justified in insisting Matt take his hat off or that Matt take his hat uh, down, uh, take his, wear his hat. Or we might be entirely justified in insisting that worship be loud or that worship be quiet or that uh, children should be homeschooled or that children should go to public schools or that Christians should vote Republican or that Christians should uh, vote Democratic or that Genesis is history or that Genesis is fable. On those and a myriad of other questions, we may be totally right in thinking what we do. But the true test of our Christianity is not being able to argue successfully that we're right. The true test of our Christian maturity is to be able to compromise our, our, our lives and our beliefs and our practices for the sake of loving other people when we can. The true test of our faith is whether we can sacrifice our own preferences for the sake of our weaker brothers, for the sake of unity, as Jesus sacrificed himself for us. So three key principles. Unity is sometimes more important than being right. Uh, compromise takes strength. And sacrifice for others as Jesus did. Three key principles. Apply them as you will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom of Scripture uh, that you give us to help us uh, learn to love other people in Christian ways and to advance the cause of the gospel. Uh, the city of St. Louis, our world, uh, needs a church that is unified by Jesus and can figure out how to love each other in spite of whatever other differences we might have. Help us figure out how to apply Paul's wisdom in our day and age. Help us figure out what and where we can compromise and where we shouldn't. We'll never compromise in the gospel here. That Jesus died for our sin and rose from the dead to defeat the power of death and is coming again to restore all things and in that we have hope and because of that we can endure that's what the that's what St. Louis needs to hear help us focus on that and agree to love each other in spite of whatever other food fights we might have thank you for everybody here thank you for our visitors thank you for our seekers I pray that you might uh, have shown them your love this morning 
through your word, through the music, through the conversation. We praise you, Father, for sending your son Jesus to die for our sins and for being with us.